And let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is good to be here this morning. We come before you thankful that you have given us your word. We thank you for this opportunity to look into it and ask that you would simply teach us, guide us. Father, give, give me good uh, just words, good thoughts, um, and, and good communication. Please give everyone attentive ears. Um, and Father, also uh, good input and questions uh, as, as those things can and should come up. Uh, Father, we thank you for this passage and pray that you would just guide us through it. In the name of Christ, amen. We're going to start in uh, Hebrews 5, verse 7, a little bit of overlap um, with, with what Jonathan finished up last week, or at the end of his time, and, and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. So um, we'll start in verse 7 and read through verse 14. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Uh, so Jonathan finished up through verse 10 last week, but there's just a couple things I want to kind of go back and touch on and just some things that were kind of interesting or uh, just of, you know, kind of curious to me that I want just to, to touch on as we get started here this morning. Um, the first thing that kind of jumped out to me in those beginning verses was that Jesus was heard because of his rev reverence. And Jonathan talked well last week about um, his prayers and, and focusing that on the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane sorry, um, and that salvation for Jesus was actually the resurrection. His being saved from death was that death could not hold him. Um, and that was a great point. It just struck me that he was heard because of his reverence. Um, that's just an interesting phrase that the author of Hebrews brings out. Um, and we, we hear a decent amount about what it means to fear God, to have awe of God, to reverence God. And that's essentially what the author of Hebrews is getting at here. Um, and if you look at Jesus, he had in everything... He, he was authentically submitted to God's will and purposes in all things. All right, this makes sense. It is, it is clear. He obeyed the Father in all things. He was devoted to the will of God, and he had concern for the honor of God. And so because of that, when he came to God in prayer, this, this reverence included this, this devotion, this, this prayer perfectly in line with God's intent and plan in the world, right? If we revered and feared and we held God in awe as perfectly as he did, our prayers would be perfectly aligned with what God desires to accomplish in this world and with what he is accomplishing in this world, right? And that is how Jesus prayed. And that's amazing to think about. Like we're, 
created a whole different play, whole mm -hmm. different level of existence of Jesus. But it's it's kind of saddening to realize that we're that bad. We're, we're in that place. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's the sorrow that we ought to feel when we see sin. And just when we realize how bad sin is, how opposed to God that sin is. Um, and so in that sense, yes, like we should feel that, that kind of a sorrow over our, our fallenness and just how easy it is for us to not live like we ought to or pray like we ought to. Um, and the thing that struck me about this was the implications that this has for our prayers. Um, our small group is going through a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. We've only read chapter one, but it's very good. And, and one of the points that, that Carson brings out in that is that we ought to use the scriptures to inform and guide our prayers. And, and that, I think, will be really, really helpful. That's one of the reasons I think the book is going to be really helpful to us, is that our prayer life should be reformed more by the scripture right, than, than it currently is. Um, and as we do that, you know, say you read a prayer of Paul's and then you kind of turn around and, and pray that for your church family. You know, Paul writes a lot of prayers in, in the, the epistles that he writes for the churches he's writing to. He says, I'm praying this for you. I'm, I'm constantly remembering you in my prayers. And he goes through and describes those prayers in some measure. That is a great way to change your prayers, is to read one of those and then think about your church family and pray that for your church family. And that is a very biblical, God-honoring prayer. right? It is a prayer that is going to be more accurately in tune with God's will than, than many of the prayers we just pray kind of off the cuff. Personally, as far as everyone else was playing rock, paper, scissors, you just played fire. And, and uh, you know. What's, what's your name? Nathan Barkin. Nathan, nice to meet you. First time? I, I just haven't seen you here before. Is I this? had a, a study partner who was a Methodist. Okay. Okay, yeah. Um, just so you know, we, we're, we're glad to have you. It's good to have you here this morning. Um, we rent this church from the Methodists, just so you know. Um, yeah, they are. Um, but it's good to have you. And uh, what's your name? Seth. Nice Seth Fuller. Nice to meet you. Um, Could you spell that for me? Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even see you come in. I understand. <laughs> it's so long since I've seen you, I forgot your name. In 1 John 5, John says, This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. All right, so this is not a, a name it, claim it, in whatever you want to 
you know, name, prayer promise here. But this is exactly what Jesus did. What John says in 1 John is exactly what Jesus did, right? He asked according to the will of the Father every time. And he had everything that he asked for because it was exactly what God was desiring to accomplish in this world. Right? And so that, that is what we're seeing here. That's what Jesus did. That's what this reverence um, refers to in some measure. And this is a great thing for us to learn from. Right? Obviously, God hears everything that is said on this earth. He hears every prayer that is ever prayed. So when it says that he was heard because, because of his reverence, we're not talking about God, you know, in, in a sense, audibly hearing Jesus. We're talking about him hearing and responding with a positive yes to that prayer of Jesus's. And that's what it's talking about in 1 John as well. Um, and so as we pray, it is crucial to let the word guide and inform our prayers and, and for that to happen more consistently, right? So that we are more in line with the will of God as we pray. Right? And that is just a, a great example and just a, a good point of application from what it says here in Hebrews. Yes, Brother Dennis. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, We receive the kingdom which can't be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably mm. with reverence in godly fear. So, since Jesus is the captain of our salvation, the pioneer mm. of the faith, what a model he was of one who was heard because of his reverence. Yeah. If anybody yeah. ever revered God the Father, mm. it was God the Son and gave him his due honor, and therefore there was perfect communion between God the Father and God the Son, and that's a wonderful example for us. If we expect to have communion with the Lord, we have to have a godliness and a reverent fear of the Lord in a way that we're walking humbly before him and have that sort of sweetness of relationship. Mm. Amen. Amen. Moving on, the next thing that, that jumped out at me was, although he was a son, he learned obedience. And him as a son harkens back to chapter 1, where it talks about the privileges of the son, the greatness of the son, the superiority of the son. And so the, the logical question is, well, if he is that special, and he is, he's that superior, then maybe he's going to be exempt from the normal ways of learning, the normal sufferings of this world. And so the author of Hebrews in verse 8 says, although he was a son, right, even though he was that son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Um, and, and this is, again, a fascinating, interesting concept, the learning of Christ. Um, and we have to have some ability in our minds to differentiate between Christ as a human and Christ as God. And those were certainly... 100% both true at the same time in the, the what, what is called the hypostatic union. But he, while being 100% God and knowing everything, was still 100% human and therefore needed to learn and needed to grow and didn't, as a human, know everything in infant stage, right? As God, he did, but as a human, he, he didn't, right? And that's an incredibly hard concept for us to figure out because, well, it's just totally out of the realm of our understanding, but both those need to be true. It yeah. just seems to me that as, as I don't doubt that that is true uh, in its narrow 
think that there's benefit that is primarily for us in understanding that. Because if we know that Christ came and learned and suffered as a man, the identification with our condition is complete. Mm-hmm. And that's the benefit for us. I mean, let's face it, I don't think Jesus needed to benefit from learning those things. He certainly did, by, by but, but it wasn't primarily for his benefit, it was for us. Yeah. Well, for him, it was for him to, that was part of the high priest, yeah. you know, one of the three requirements. He had to be sympathetic to the people he was representing before God. Amen. So, like Mark was saying, it's not like he necessarily had to go through those things to learn, but he had, he, we, we, it's more for our benefit. We mm-hmm. know he's sympathetic to us as we pray. We yeah. know what he's felt hurt. We know he's felt, he knows what loss is like. We know he knows what it's like to struggle with temptation. We mm-hmm. know he knows what it's like to be in pain and agony. You know, we, we know he knows all of these things, all these emotions and everything. So we know as we're praying, yeah. he understands us. He's that captain. He's been there and gone through all those things. So it's not this not this huge disconnect. Amen. Pat, we're going to come to you. I almost wonder how we take the word, and I don't know the Greek, probably a few of us do, but obedience through suffering. Uh, if we take that to mean he learned obedience through suffering, or he learned what it means to obey through suffering. Mm-hmm. You understand mm-hmm. the distinction there? Yep. It's not a, it's not a difference with a distinction without a difference. Yep. He learned obedience through suffering. He learned what it means to uh, <coughs> suffer by means of, uh, to obey by means of suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. I think he genuinely learned it. Yeah, uh, and, and John MacArthur had a great quote here. He said that Christ, and this may be the, the way we understand him learning, mm-hmm. even though he was God, he said Christ humbled himself to learn. That's right. Right, so so he he consciously allowed himself to be in a place where where he would learn, which is an incredibly humble place given who he is and was. Amen. Right, Tony, did you have something that you wanted to? Yes, sir. I'm just wondering if, um, when it talks about the things from which he suffered, would not only be the crucifixion, but it would be all throughout his life. Yeah. Uh, he felt the things that we felt, mm-hmm. the torments, the deaths, uh, yeah. the sadnesses, the challenges, being uh, also being uh, challenged by Satan, mm-hmm. being tempted. He, he suffered all of this yeah. throughout his life. Definitely. And probably... One of the greatest things is he knew that someday he was going to be paying for our salvation. And that, you know, I mean, when I think about going to the dentist, you know, I, I get a little nervous as it comes closer and closer. I get that's, more and more nervous. That's your comparison. Huh? You know, <laughs> 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 Jesus I, thinking about going to the dentist. That's right. 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 I, I understand. Yeah. suffering exceeded anything we could possibly experience. Mm. Even in, uh, I think it's Isaiah, says he was marred more than any man. Yeah. That, that verse really, I mean, he was marred. We, we say marred, but obviously we know what happened. 
his sufferings were greater than, uh, that's why I, 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 well, I kind of mm. look at heaven as the Superman that we've all been, been introduced to, but don't realize how much of a Superman he really was in his life. His suffering, just by way of application, ought to shape the way we view our suffering. Right, and this is this is stated throughout the New Testament, but but if he suffered, then so ought we. Like if we are following in his footsteps, suffering is going to happen. Suffering is going to come, um, and it may not be from persecution. But if if you're not suffering in your fight against sin, you're probably not fighting sin, right? This idea of suffering is, is like, we tend to think of it as, like, things that are coming against us that we either don't like or that impact us in a negative way, whether it's physical or, or, or spiritual or, or persecution or these kinds of things. I mean, like, it's pretty likely that none of us have really been, like, persecuted yeah. too deep, right? But I think a part of suffering, too, that Christ experienced and it might be the greatest closest way that we suffer alongside of him is in how he when he just looked across the people mm. and saw their disobedience and saw their pain and saw the things that they were using to fill their pain it's no different mm. then to now right and and so like for us like I've never felt persecuted, even when I've lived in Haiti, and you know, to any nth degree or, or physical suffering. But you know, but but where where my suffering comes closest to connecting with Christ is when I look across and I see mm. people that are filling their lives with everything but Jesus, mm. and and it yeah. just it breaks your heart because you want to hug them and shake them and punch them and and, and all of those things at the same time, and and I, I feel like that's a really big connection to suffering yeah. alongside of Christ that I don't hear talked about too much. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big reasons why Jesus wept when he wept over his yeah. only church was that too? When he wept with Lazarus. Right, with Lazarus. Lazarus. I don't know the other two. Yeah, so. when he wept three times. Yeah, one of the three times he wept over his okay. for that very reason. Yeah, how, how I've longed to gather you and you were unwilling. Sure. Yeah. The other thing that comes to mind when I think of suffering is Jesus telling the uh, Disciples, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. Right? That's that's uh, that's a suffering style of life. You know, the, these Hebrews that he was writing to, they're going through difficult times. Mm. Tenth chapter, verse thirty-four and five, he says, uh, "And you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, mm. knowing your, in yourself that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance." And they're yeah. encouraged at the end of the book to say. Let us go forth therefore unto him bearing his reproach. Yeah. So they were identified by Christ of their sufferings and vice versa. So yeah. the relationship was strong in that area. And uh and, and we'll use that as a springboard to jump into verse eleven. Um because they may have been struggling with continuing on and striving through in the midst of suffering. And I say that because of what the author of Hebrews does starting in verse 11. So so we come into chapter 5, and he's starting to build this high priest imagery. He's starting to bring us into this, this uh, discussion 
about the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's going to continue that in verse 7. All right, he's going to really delve into it. But the author of Hebrews pauses, starting in verse 11. He's going to continue it through chapter 6, verse 12. And he is going to exhort and challenge and really, really uh, kind of shake the, 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 the believers he's writing to by what he says. So let's read verses 11 through 14 again, and then we'll spend the rest of our, our time there. He says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, we need some, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Nice, nice encouraging passage here this morning. <clears throat> we have much to say, but you're dull of hearing. So, when you read through this, or if you read through other passages in the Bible, uh, are there times when you have more questions than answers? Do you not understand the references, the connections, the, the theology that's being taught? Sometimes that certainly happens, especially with, with harder passages. Peter himself acknowledges that some of the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand, right? Um, and for us, that's depending on where we're at, how long we've studied, how much we've learned, like it's going to happen at different places. For the, the Hebrews here, for the audience, this was just true. And the writer just calls it out. You are dull of hearing. And so he's using this as a sharp call to rouse them because there's something wrong in them. There's something they have failed to do. And so let's look at this and, because he postpones his discussion about Christ as the, the priest in the order of Melchizedek to say this and, and to really bring this right before their eyes. So the critical problem is not the difficulty of the theology he's teaching, Right? It's not some mysterious concept that he's going to bring before them. He's not uh, expounding things that are hard to put into words. Interestingly, the, the, the normal usage of this dull word here is when something was hard to put into words. But the author of Hebrews says that's not the problem here. He says it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's not hard to explain because I can't explain it. Or it's not hard to explain because it's ununderstandable. It's you have not kept your hearing sharp. You, you are not in tune to these things. You are dull. You are sluggish. And, it, and that word also brings in this, this idea of a culpable negligence in, in some aspect of their learning and their growing, right? their maturity, that they have not continued to learn and grow in a way that would that he could call them mature right Possibly, yeah. 
I just feel set that the audience that he's preaching to here are immature Jewish Christians. And that, that's where the milk comes in from mm-hmm. the bed. And this is where teaching and discipling comes in, where their eyes need to be opened up. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road on. Yes, um, but they're not young Christians, and that's the interesting part. It's not like they were saved six months ago, and he's just saying, you just got a lot to learn. He's saying, you should be further along than you are. Well, as we know, as yeah. the Apostle Paul is always rebuking them, like, if I had known these, why aren't these decisions being made in your church? Right, amen. Uh, go. Uh, I think it's. I think it's a warning that we at times can become very sluggish mm-hmm. in our walk with the Lord. Yeah. We need to have a desire, and that's where the problem uh, sometimes runs in. Mm-hmm. We don't have that complete desire to want to read, to want to pray, to want to have that relationship. We think we're, I hate to say this, but as people say to me when we're evangelizing, I'm all set, I'm right. good. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we're not. Yeah, Mike? I guess I was going to ask a question that I guess kind of, along with, with Wally's line where if it's in, if it's saying you've become dull that implies that at one point you weren't so mm-hmm. like what happened yeah. like was there this like fervor for understanding the things of God that suddenly they like kind of hit this place where they're like okay we're kind of good we can sort of take the foot off the gas mm-hmm. and coast a little bit and he's saying yeah. you've become dull in that you've lost you've lost that passion of of, of learning who I am yeah. I, I, like where what made them become dull? Yeah, um, the, the only guess I have, and I don't, I don't know for certain, but the only guess I have is that the the difficulty of being a Christian has slowed them down. And, and, and I say that because of what he touches on at the end in verse 14, where he says, The mature have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Mm-hmm. And he also talks a lot in the book of Hebrews about suffering. And so it... It could be that the difficulty and the suffering that has come with faithfulness um, has just caused them to just kind of, you know, slink back and and not want to, to push it anymore, not want to just keep taking the, the hits again and again. So they've they've started to lose some ground based on that. Yeah, and I've used this phrase a lot of times over the years, and it's the first thing the Lord says, is the church teaching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a predis- in my opinion, predisposition of pride that, that mm. um, gets in the way of the humility that we have to uh, present our own selves to for the word of God and, yeah. and also too the teachableness of suffering mm. and I think that that's, that's not what they're submitting to here suffer hardship with me most of us don't want to agree with God on that yeah. and we resist and we're, we, we actually can use that phrase upon our own self by the Holy Spirit in the midst of the suffering. And yeah. it goes with my dear brother there talking about the suffering as a context. And I think that's part of it. Not, yeah. not being teachable in that framework. Yeah. And so they've, they've been slack because of it. And their, their attentiveness has waned. 
the, the author of Hebrews has already told them multiple times, and therefore us, the importance of the word. And, and what these people need, what we often need, is a renewed commitment to the word, a renewed commitment to obedience. Um, and this is something he's been focusing on at different points up to this, this chapter 5. Back in chapter 2, he says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've learned, lest we drift from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This this has been a theme, this need to, to kind of check yourself, to be attentive to the word, right? Chapter 4, verse 1, Since... Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should have seen to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Right? There is this call to, to heed the word, and to, to do what he's saying, in some measure, they're not doing at the end of chapter 5, right? They're starting to slip. They're starting to let the distractions come in. I have a little bit of empathy for them. So these people are, you know, 20, 30 years after Christ mm -hmm. and very used to a entirely surrogate spirituality. Mm -hmm. Priesthood. Represented yep. by the old covenant priesthood in which they were not really engaged in the things of atonement and mm -hmm. things like that as well. So, now they're involved, this is a very transitional period, they're involved in, or are going to become increasingly involved in being the royal priesthood themselves, with Jesus as the great high priest, which is why they need to learn about the high priesthood, which is why this is, this little piece here is sandwiched in between the first comment about the Melchizedek priesthood, and what's going to be two more chapters full of priesthood teachings. Mm -hmm. They need to learn a lot about the priesthood of Jesus that they're not soaked in yet. Because yeah. they're still in that time when they're they're not yet acclimated to mm. what it means to be fully immersed in that priesthood. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. They were stood somewhat aloof from yeah. the priesthood of the Old Covenant. Which which is sad, because it's a failure of the, the teachers of the Old Covenant to yep. allow that to happen. Because it wasn't meant to be this, this surrogate mm -hmm. you know, thing that helps me, but I'm not really involved with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the challenge. Yeah, I'm sorry, but just before we move on from that, I think that's a really good a really good point. That's something that like you don't necessarily always think of the timeline of things, mm -hmm. right? And, and so like 20, yeah. 30 years that that's not a lot of time, especially transitioning from something that was like so ingrained, like this is how it is. And mm. I, I guess like an, an example that like comes into my into my mind is like when I was in in Albania, mm. um, and and they uh, they were they weren't very far removed from communism, you know, yeah. and, and there was many adults who grew up under under the, the communist regime, and and so even, however, what is that, was it 50 years, I guess, ago there, uh, that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that they came out of communism, like, so much of how they conduct themselves in their daily life is mm. still rooted in that, in that system, and that yeah. was something that wasn't even part of their culture for that long, yeah. you know? And, and so yeah. that was like a 20-year experiment that they're 50 years removed from, and they're still acting yeah. in ways that that 
were implanted and imprinted on them from communism. So something like this, like, there's still, I don't yeah, I, I can totally see, given that, like, how that would be really still tricky yeah. and, like, taking baby steps. Because this is, like, first generation of people that are doing it different for the first time in a long yeah. time. They're still being lazy wretches, but... <laughs> Amen. And let's let's move on to the next thing. And the specific thing he says is that they they can kind of measure their progress by. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Enough time has passed. And this is a great challenge for us to think about. Enough time has passed for them to be at the point where they can mm-hmm. teach others. Mm-hmm. And And again, late 60s is approximately when this book was written. All right, so we're about 30 years after Jesus mm-hmm. came. No guarantee that all of them were saved, mm-hmm. you know, at Pentecost, like right after Jesus came, right? Um, so in the, we'll say, 20 to 30-year range, he's saying there's been enough time mm-hmm. for you to, at this point, be teachers, mm-hmm. and you're not, yeah. right? And so this is not him writing to the elders of a church, mm-hmm. right? This is him writing to believers everywhere. And so the great challenge for us to think about is am I at a place where I can teach the word of God to somebody else? Right? And don't think of it in, in this kind of a setting, but, but think of it more in the, the, the coffee shop setting, I'll say. right? Can you go to a coffee shop with a friend, sit down with them, open the word of God to them, and teach them? Right? If you can't, is your life intentionally on a trajectory that will get you to the place where you can. All right? Because those are the only two options that we have from this passage. I think being on that trajectory, uh, you have to understand that you don't have to have a full-blown theological grasp of everything that might be discussed in the church or in the scriptures to teach someone because you can convey a single elementary truth to someone who is less informed. Yes. And I think that's, that's where you begin. There is a level of maturity to this that we don't want to kind of ease our conscience with the idea that, well, I can teach some things to somebody else. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, there's more to this than just being able to share your testimony with somebody. right? There's a level of maturity here that we need to be targeting and headed towards. Right? And, and that's the challenge with this. Can we teach, I'll say, the majority of the big topics in Scripture? somebody else right if you can't do eschatology I'm okay with that right but but can you go through the the main tenets of the gospel can you go through justification you know the doctrine of sin uh, the, the Trinity the basics of what it means for God to be a triune God uh, the the need for God to be a creator uh, the need for Jesus to come as a man can can you describe to somebody why God is a sovereign God? You know, some of the main attributes of God, his holiness, his, his justice, his love. Can, can you work through these in an understandable way with somebody? Well, we need to ask God to bring really smart, passionate unbelievers to us. Because the, yeah. the ability to get yourself regularly yeah. discussing these things, very frankly, yeah. uh, the culture we're immersed in, that conversation doesn't get beyond three or four minutes. 
But to have a really good, mm-hmm. you know, passionate unbeliever come along yeah. and challenge that would be great. Or you could just ask Pat to coffee and tell him to just challenge you in everything you believe. All right? Because he's good at that, too. I've done that already. So, so this is the challenge. Um, if you're not there, okay, you need to be headed there. All right? And if you're there, keep going because you're not, you know, fully there yet. Right? But but I think the, the, the main thing for us to take away from this is if, if I, if I'm not a great teacher, if I can't expound well, maybe not in exhaustive detail, but if I can't expound well the the main themes of the Bible, am I intentionally pursuing the that ability, like getting to the point where I'll be able to do that? Am I on that trajectory, or am I just doing the Christian life and figuring that eventually, in 20 years, I'll I'll probably be as you know knowledgeable or as mature as some of the other people I see in the church, right? Arriving at a point of maturity, you don't meander your way there, Mm. right? It's an intentional Mm. pursuit of a a goal in the future, right? So if you can teach somebody, then you are, praise the Lord, in the category of a mature believer. Keep going, right? You're not there yet. If you can't teach somebody... You are in the category of a child who is still feeding on just milk. And you have work ahead of you. Intentional, focused work so you can arrive to the place of maturity. Milk in this passage means that you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Solid food is described as having the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And this brings in something more than just knowledge. This brings in a practical being able to live out what you have learned from the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's also a huge difference here. There are, like it says in James, you know, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons, in a sense, could preach a more knowledgeable, more scripturally accurate sermon than than most Christians, right? Just because of of the knowledge, right? But there is zero, zero action. There is zero true belief behind it. So that's the second challenge that comes out of this passage as the author describes what it means to be on milk versus what it means to be eating solid food. Uh, this word of righteousness is kind of an odd phrase. Um, it, mm. it most likely just refers to the word of God, to, to what God has given us in the Bible. Um, and, and, and with, I would think, specific focus on, on the gospel, right? Because the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of Christ. It's pointing to the gospel. The New Testament is teaching us and, and looking back and reflecting on what Christ has done. Um, so it's all tied together. This is like in Paul in 1 Corinthians says, the things of first importance. Right? And he's basically at that point just describing the gospel. I, uh, I want to remind you of the things of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that's what the, the whole of the Bible is bringing us to, that pinnacle of salvation history. And so that, in connection with the high priest comments that are being made, brings in also the the need for us to understand how salvation comes and that it is by faith in our high priest and is not by works 
It is not by somebody else doing something for us. And I think all of that is tied in here. Um, where does true righteousness come from? And that is fundamental to the Christian faith. And that is fundamental to maturity. Because if we don't understand that, then we've missed a fundamental tenet of the gospel. Right? So this word of righteousness, I think, encapsulates all of that. But it becomes, for the mature, a practical, everyday truth that, that is lived out. Right? Because as you take in the word of God, as you take in and study the word of righteousness, and you understand the gospel, it has to affect daily life. And if it doesn't, you may not be saved. Right? Faith without works is dead. Right? And so if these believers are having a, a reluctance to press on, maybe they understand a good amount of stuff, but they're just not applying. You know? Or maybe they just need to understand more and then also apply it. But there's something that is preventing them from working out the deeper implications of the gospel in their everyday life because they are not arriving to the point of having a discerning mind that is trained by constant practice. They've not arrived to the point where they can easily discern good from evil. And that's something we need. The culture is muddying the waters. There's not a clear line of right and wrong in our culture anymore. And so it is crucial for us to be clear and to know how to define that. Um, I listened to Al Mohler's briefing. He does a political analysis uh, every morning. He, Monday through Friday, he does it for about 25 minutes. Pretty quick thing. It's helpful because he is really good at seeing through the, the comments in a news article or, or in a magazine that he reads. He sees through it to what's behind it, and he analyzes that. And he analyzes the good and the evil. Right? And, and, and that's so helpful because when, when somebody's writing an article about the, you know, the reason abortion should be legal or, or the reason that the, the uh, gender fluidity should be accepted in our culture, they don't come out with their, 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 their heart views and they don't present them in a way that sounds bad. Right? They're usually just talking about some issue on the periphery and they're making their view sound very good. And you can almost in a sense say, well, you know what? I see where they're coming from, but underneath it is this evil, you know, like core belief. And in being able to see through to that is crucial. So that's part of what it talks about here. Um, but this is very practical for us, right? Because if we're not living out a righteous life, then we have failed to apply the word of righteousness in a way that is mature. Right? Constant practice is what helps us to more consistently distinguish good from evil. And this, this gets us to the point where we're, we're making mature, wisely, godly decisions and then, and then doing those things. So, so as we close and think about this in the context of parenting or in the context of uh, a marriage, uh, in the context of your work, your free time, the, the entertainment that you partake in, uh, your thoughts on political things, Pat, <laughs> uh, siblings, uh, temptations that come at you on a daily basis. You are a mature 
believer, if you are applying the Word of God to those situations, discerning good from evil, and then choosing the good. It's not going to be perfect, but that is our challenge. And that's and that's what the author of the Hebrews calls these people to. That's maturity. Right? And when you do it, it's going to bring suffering. But keep doing it. Because it's worth it. Any closing thoughts? Alright. Uh, we're going to close in prayer and then we're going to ask that anybody who is willing and able would help set up the tables and arrange the chairs for our, our luncheon after service today. So let's pray. Father, it is your word is always good to us. Um, Father, not that it's always easy to hear, not that we always um, come away feeling as though we are doing everything perfectly. Father, we never come away feeling that. Um, but Father, we come to your word thankful that we have a great high priest who has gone before us who has done all of these things perfectly who is the the author of an eternal salvation that is not going to ever change and we rejoice just with 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 happy hearts in that truth and father we also as we remember that as we rejoice we come to these passages and we are reminded also that there is just more we have to work on more we have to do to grow um Father, more sanctification that needs to take place, and we ask for your help in that. Father, that we might, with, with happy hearts in what Christ has done, that we might long to pursue uh, the, the life that Christ lived, to live like he did. Father, um, help us to do that, please. And, and when suffering comes, or whether that be just fighting our own personal sin um, and denying ourselves, or whether it be uh, outward suffering just brought to us by the world father may we may we just count it all joy and 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 go through that father knowing that we are pursuing something far greater um, and we are pursuing something the world cannot take from us so father help us and, and bless us and cause us to to be happy in you i pray in the name of christ amen, amen. Thanks,